It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. How does one negotiate with jello we talk negotiations compromise and the government shutdown on today's episode this is sarah from the left and beth from the right you're listening to pantsy politics no shouting no insults Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. If you have time this week, we would love a rate and review for Pantsuit Politics on the Apple Podcast app, or you can check out our new podcast, The Nuanced Life. This week on Wednesday's episode, we will be talking about sex. We just recorded it. It was a really, really great conversation. I can't wait for everybody to hear it. And we talk more in depth about Aziz Ansari and that controversy and what that says about men and women and our relationships particularly with regards to sex. I think you guys are really going to like the conversation. So go check out The Nuance Life. 
We have a lot to cover today. We're going to start with a couple of quick discussions about news of the week and actually news from last week as well. We're going to talk about the Larry Nasser hearing and what's happening with North and South Korea around the Olympics. For our main topic today, we are going to discuss the government shutdown, lessons learned from it, what we think will happen going forward, and we will end, as always, with what's on our minds outside of politics. So how much of the Larry Nasser hearing have you watched, Beth? I have read more than I've watched, Me too. but I have been trying to keep up with it because I think that what's happening in that hearing is pretty remarkable, not just because of the jaw-dropping nature of his crimes and the eloquence of his victims, but the fact that a judge is spending so much time during a sentencing hearing giving the floor to these young women. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I love that judge. I'm here for her. I'm here for, like, he was like, oh, this will be too hard for me to listen to. And she was basically like, "Ah, I don't care. I'm going to do my job. You didn't do your job, but I'm going to do mine. I think that's amazing. All the props to the judge in this case. In case you haven't been following this story, the the very brief highlight is Larry Nasser was the doctor for the U.S. Olympic gymnast team, and he was also a sports doctor at Michigan State University. In that capacity, more than 140 women and girls have said that he abused them, and the details of it are pretty grotesque. Mm-hmm. So the judge, Rosemarie Aquilina, is taking time. The sentencing hearing has gone on for four days. And she's just hearing from all of the victims, and it's really been remarkable. Allie Raisman's testimony has gotten a lot of publicity, as it should. And what I thought would be interesting to talk about with her testimony is that she used her time not only to speak out about what he did, but about the complicity of so many adults and institutions in Mm -hmm. his crimes, and talking about how sickening it is to her that he has so influenced the sport and the policies and procedures around the sport. And she talked about erasing him from that. Like, she's going to use her life to erase his influence in the sport. That has really far-reaching implications that I think are really important if Me Too is going to have the kind of staying power that I think most of us hope that it will. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You know what I would like? I would like a, I don't know, four-day hearing on the USOC and their responsibility for this. And I would like all the adults who were in charge of that organization who knew and kept this abuse a secret and protected this man to have to sit there and listen to these women and girls talk about the abuse they suffered too. Because that, to me, is the truly despicable part. I feel the same way about that as I do about what happened at at Penn State. Like, I want people to go to jail for this. Some of the sports directors at Penn State went to jail. I want some people at the USOC who sat by and let this happen to go to jail. And in addition to that, I want organizations to step back and think, what are we doing today that seems completely innocuous, that has been influenced by really predatory behavior and attitudes? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Root it out. Root it out, people. That's a long soul-searching process, and it's one that's going to require a lot more women in leadership positions to keep that on top of everyone's mind and to make sure that we don't ever let this go again. Because this story is such a heartbreaking example of what happens when you just let it go. You know what this reminds me of? Do you listen to This American Life? Sometimes. The newest episode is called chip in my brain and it is the story of a young boy who was his parents hired a basketball tutor basically 
an older man who tutored him in basketball and then over the course of several years really indoctrinated him with a sort of end of times rapture sci-fi worldview where you know the mark of the beast and they're going to implant radio frequencies in your brain and blah 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 all that crap they the the experts called it basically like this guy basically was like a one-on-one cult and took several years for his parents to to figure out what's going on they pulled him out immediately but i mean it really ruined his life for several years he couldn't go to college he was terrified that he was really doing something wrong and that God was going to judge him and that his parents were already control. I mean, like super, super indoctrination. And towards the end, they decide to sue the basketball tutor for intentional infliction of emotional distress, which is a hard case to prove. But they went to court and they talk about the jury found, spoiler alert if you wanted to listen to the episode, the jury found for the young boy, and they said, yeah, this guy did this to you. But they only punished the guy with $4. And they talked about to the jurors, like, how did you end up deciding that this terrible crime was committed but only wanting to punish with $4? And they talked about, my favorite line in the whole piece, was that they did an initial vote, and people, it was like eight were thought that the guy had done it, two didn't, and two were undecided. And they said, basically, the mothers on the jury went to town <laughs> and was, like, convinced these other two. And then the $4 was to, to say, like, there was harm here, but maybe not. We don't want to ruin this other guy's life. But I just love that line. I just love the line that, like, the mothers and the jury were like, uh-uh, no. There was real harm here. This is the problem. This is why. Like, I just loved that line. And I think it's so true on so many levels and so not that morals that mothers are across the board superior moral creatures that's not what i'm arguing but i think there's just a perspective there i think it could be a father too that says like no like just this is the problem with predatory behavior this is why they need to be held responsible and that this larry nasser thing is just so disturbing because so many people tried to charge him and tried to and went and told the right people and did everything you're supposed to do and he still got away with it for decades because they were protecting him I read Allie Raisman's testimony while I was sitting in a gym with my daughter at gymnastics practice. Oh, my gosh. It really made me think about how the women of our generation who are raising children right now are going to be impacted by this social conversation. And what a watchdog, you know. And I'm not saying that anybody hasn't been in the past. But, boy, it brings home that, like, we can't sit anything out. Mm -hmm. We can't sit anything out. And not only for your own child, but for everyone. I want to be reasonable and judicious with my children. I don't want to go so protective that I isolate them from life experiences. I also am watching all this unfold thinking, what is my responsibility and how can I exercise it when so many people before me have been trying to do that very thing and still this happens? Well, I think that so often what happens when a child is preyed upon. And I say this because I I saw a little bit of this with the shooting at my high school when I was a kid. And I understand it now from as a parent. It's so painful as a parent to acknowledge that your child is going through something hard, that you couldn't protect them from something hard, or even worse, that you made a mistake that exposed them to something hard, that I understand why people do what they do and protect and and run from it. It just compounds the harm. To run from it makes it so much worse. 
Well, that might be an interesting life lesson to use when we think about our next topic, which is North Korea Mm. and South Korea and the Olympics. Olympics is a theme today. I think this is one of the most fascinating things that's happened with the, the Korean peninsula in a long time. First, let me say straight up, I don't really like the Olympics. It's not my thing. I think it's all sort of, it seems a little bogus and the like emotional charge, which you would think would be right up my alley of like global participation and communication. I don't know. Some of it just really, it rings false to me. But dang, if that can get North Korea and South Korea together, I'm here for it. I take back every bad thing I ever said about the Olympics. Although I wonder if it is, as I'm reading all these things about North Korea and South Korea participating together in the Olympics, I wonder if so much of it is like, don't you wonder if they're just sitting being like, well, we got to work this out because dude over there in the United States is crazy. I mean, really? I kind of feel like that might be another motivation. Well, let's just recap what's been happening if you haven't been following this along. The South Korean president, Moon, has said since before he got elected that he was going to be a leader in the world in dealing with North Korea. And as everyone knows, the Winter Olympics are going to be held in South Korea. And he he has been reaching out to Kim Jong-un for a long time, trying to talk about how we don't want anything embarrassing to happen during the Olympics in South Korea. Well, representatives of both nations had this really groundbreaking meeting and the talks have continued. From those talks, we have a joint women's ice hockey team from South and North Korea planning to participate in the Olympics. I think that still has to be approved by the Olympics Committee. And the two countries plan to have their athletes march together under one Korean Peninsula flag. And President Moon is taking a great deal of heat for that in South Korea. There are lots of people who do not like this combined ice hockey team idea and do not like the idea of the two countries marching together. And I can certainly understand why. But President Moon is hopeful that this is going to help the relationship generally and help the Olympics go smoothly and hopefully eventually lead to some frank and productive talks about the nuclear program. This is happening at the same time that Rex Tillerson has announced that the U.S. will act militarily if North Korea won't negotiate on its nuclear weapons. President Trump, upon hearing about these discussions, reached out to President Moon asking for some credit for bringing the two sides together. And President Moon gave him that credit a few hours later. The Washington Post writes about that. Moon is trying to manipulate Trump into effectively undermining his own policy, putting pressure on North Korea, said one former official asking for anonymity to protect officials still in government. That person said Kim Jong-un is setting the agenda here. His purpose is to use these talks to show the world that he's okay and to make the sanction efforts lose steam. I don't know if they're doing this because they're looking at President Trump and saying that person's crazy. And then President Trump will say crazy like a fox. I got you guys to do something that you'd never done before. I don't know if this is going to go anywhere beyond the Olympics or not. I I think we have to see any productive conversation between North and South Korea as a positive. We always take a second to compliment someone who is not of our party before we move on to our main topic. Sarah, who do you want to compliment this week? I want to compliment Lindsey Graham. I feel like our frustration levels are matched. Mainly, I'm just happy that somebody said Stephen Miller is part of the problem here, and when he walks in the room, everything falls apart. I will go into that more in the main segment, but I just appreciated him saying that. So in a slightly different direction, I wanted to compliment Governor Kate Brown of Oregon. 
Our listener, Bren, and I were talking about all the Democrats that are considering runs for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020. And he asked me who I might consider voting for if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, since I will vote for almost any human other than Donald Trump (laughs) in 2020. And I really appreciated that question and thought a lot about it. I do love a good governor. And so I started looking at Democratic governors. And I think Kate Brown is such a great example of ideology, meeting pragmatism, meeting leadership skills. She has done a ton for the state of Oregon. She's recognized some real efficiencies in their government. She also has a very clear, well-articulated policy agenda. So I think she would be a phenomenal candidate who could have some real appeal. So Kate Brown of Oregon would be my choice, Democrats, if you're interested in what one Never Trump Republican thinks about your nomination process. So up next, we are going to talk about the government shutdown lessons learned, what's happening today, how things might go forward from here. Get a little bit of righteous anger off our chest, mainly my chest. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. 
because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Okay, Beth, catch us up on where we are by the time this podcast is released. The government will be back open. We hope so. We are recording on Monday afternoon as the Senate is voting on a continuing resolution to reopen the government for three weeks. That CR is expected to pass. It also has to go through the House of Representatives, and we do not know what that will look like yet. I imagine that it will pass the House, and we're hopeful that the government will be open again by the time you hear this episode. I want to talk for a a second about how we got here. Some of what you've heard has made it sound like people are voting solely on the basis of DACA, which is not exactly right, and I think the procedural history matters here. Fundamentals. Congress is responsible for funding the federal government. The fiscal year begins on October 1st. Congress failed to pass a budget in advance of that deadline. And so since October, our government has been running on short-term continuing resolutions. We do not have a budget in place. So think about that in your home or business if you only knew for weeks or months at a time what the fiscal picture was going to look like, you couldn't do your job very well. Mm. And that's what Congress has been subjecting our government to since October. And that's not new. This has been happening for a long time in Congress. So the most recent continuing resolution expired at midnight on Friday. The House of Representatives, in advance of that deadline, passed a four-week continuing resolution. That resolution did not include a DACA fix It did include six years of reauthorizing the Children's Health Insurance Program. The Senate voted that down late Friday. Here's what I think has been confusing in the coverage. People were not voting for or against a shutdown, and they were not voting for or against a DACA fix. The Senate was voting on whether to pass the House's continuing resolution, which did not contain any work on DACA. And there were Republicans who voted in the majority for what the House had passed. Some Democrats, mostly people who are up for election in states that President Trump won in 2016, who voted with Republicans to keep the government open by using the four-week continuing resolution that the House had passed. And then on the other side, Democrats overwhelmingly voted no on the House's continuing resolution, with some Republicans voting with them for different reasons. Rand Paul and Mike Lee never vote for continuing resolutions. That has nothing to do with DACA and everything to do with the fact that they are budget hawks. And Rand Paul never likes to authorize spending bills because he always says that they're spending too much money. And one of the infighting issues besides immigration that's been relevant to all these budget discussions is that President Trump has asked for a huge infusion of spending on the military. 
And that's something that Rand Paul has opposed. So it's just not as clean cut as I think the coverage has portrayed it. And both sides have contributed to that. Mitch McConnell put out this horrific graphic basically saying Democrats are choosing DACA recipients over participants in the CHIP program. Mm. I just want to say also as we're kind of level setting, CHIP is not a Democratic priority. It is everyone's priority and has historically been a bipartisan, bicameral program, which has been very frustrating even as a Republican to see Republicans take that up like a bargaining chip, because that's something that we have all agreed has been important really since their program was created. And because it is Republicans who control the House of Representatives and the Senate, it is Republicans who decide whether or not we are going to vote for something. And it was Republicans who decided to stall, stall, stall reauthorizing CHIP, which is a children's health insurance program, and to put these people in limbo and use it with the continuing resolution negotiation. Just want to be clear on that because that infuriated me. So let's talk also about why DACA is part of this discussion. The president's executive order ending President Obama's executive order that created the DACA program, which allows individuals brought illegally into the United States as minors during a certain time period to remain in the United States without fear of deportation for renewable two-year periods, will go into effect on March 5th. It is not clear what happens on March 5th, absent congressional action. The Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Kirsten Nielsen, has said that deporting DREAMers is not going to be a priority for the Department of Homeland Security, but that if anyone commits a crime, DHS will enforce the law. We also have out there an order from a federal district judge in California that says the Trump administration cannot end the DACA program until a lawsuit against the administration is resolved. That lawsuit was brought in part by Janet Napolitano, who was the DHS secretary in 2012, who started DACA with President Obama. Napolitano and the University of California sued the Trump administration on very specific procedural arguments about how trying to end this program was implemented. And the district judge in California has said, those are important questions. The president is purportedly stopping this program because he believes the Obama administration violated procedures in creating it. And all of that needs to be litigated before this program can end. So March 5th is an important deadline. But I want to be clear that we don't know what's going to happen at the end of that deadline. And I think that all of that uncertainty makes it even worse if you're a person who's participated in this program. Mm -hmm. We've heard from listeners who are dreamers and who are being tossed around by the political winds. I think it is so easy for all of us to look at the government shutdown, look at the political wrangling and decide where we stand. And I am so discouraged by the polling that says over and over again that both sides don't think we should shut the government down over dreamers. And I'm not even arguing we should. I'm just saying, how would you feel if it was you and you did not know what your future held and there was all this political wrangling that left you in limbo and you literally didn't know if the country in which you had lived the majority of your life and were brought to as a child would accept you or kick you out. That is awful. That is not the America and the American values that I support. And I hate it for these people. And I hate it that this is some sort of political sideshow. You know, the only encouraging part to me 
was that there was this discussion that President Trump calling other nations shitholes seemed to light a flame. And people felt like, particularly Democrats, felt like that this was a moral and ethical issue that they were willing to take a stand on. And now we seem to have changed our minds or hopefully maybe there's some other part of this negotiation that I don't know about. But I don't know. It feels like we shut the government down and we said this was so important. We're willing to do all this. And then we got scared and we caved. I don't blame Democrats for this. I blame Stephen Miller for all of this, as I said in the compliment the other side. I'll get into that in a minute. But I hope my optimistic self says that this is only three weeks. And in three weeks, when we're all here again, there will be a stronger position and that we'll have a DACA fix. But I am not hopeful. Well, I think looking at the next three weeks, it's helpful to continue to look a little bit at the past couple of weeks, because as everyone will remember, the president convened this meeting with leaders of both parties from both chambers of Congress in front of the press to talk about the importance of a permanent codification of the DACA program. And in addition to codifying the DACA program, which polling also shows that the majority of Americans want, including the majority of Trump voters, when asked the specific question of whether people who are brought into this country by their parents should be deported as adults, almost everyone agrees that that should not happen. Right. Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin, following that public meeting at the White House, negotiated a compromise that was co-sponsored by Menendez, Bennett, Flake, Gardner, Murkowski, Alexander, Collins, and Round. That's three Democrats and seven Republicans. It appropriated $2.7 billion with a B in border security funding. It eliminated the visa lottery, which is a huge concession from Democrats. It made DACA permanent and offered a pathway to citizenship while limiting the family-based migration of people who qualify for citizenship under DACA. And I'm using the term family-based migration because I've just decided that I find the term chain migration so objectionable and also misleading. Mm -hmm. Because when I encounter people on Twitter who want to talk about immigration, I often hear about chain migration as though it is illegal. That is not what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the possibility of bringing relatives to the United States in connection with legal immigration. And there are very good reasons for families coming to the United States together. We talk a lot in this country about how much we value families. This is one of the ways that we live out that value. But anyway, as a compromise with this administration that has been so hardline on immigration, this limited family-based migration in connection with the codification of DACA. So everyone's ready to go in the Senate with this compromise. Then some hardline Republicans start opposing the compromise, saying that it's not tough enough on border security. Tom Cotton, Tom Tillis, James Lankford, Chuck Grassley, David Perdue. And you got the House of Representatives that is very, very far right in a lot of ways on immigration issues. Then John Kelly and Stephen Miller get involved. And suddenly the president goes from, good plan, everybody, as Lindsey Graham said, Tuesday Trump versus Thursday Trump, <laughs> to he's not signing this deal. And Mitch McConnell then starts to say he's not going to bring anything to the floor that doesn't have the support of the White House. And Mitch McConnell says more than once, and we don't know what the White House wants. Mm. So you have the ongoing defense funding issue, and then you've got the president negotiating directly sometimes, telling Congress to work it out other times when the Senate does seem to have it worked out, saying, no, I'm not going to do that. 
And here's a quote from Chuck Schumer that I think is a sad window into what's been happening. Congressional leaders tell me to negotiate with President Trump. President Trump tells me to figure it out with the congressional leaders. Because the president campaigned on the wall, even though he said it would be paid by Mexico and demands the wall for the sake of compromise, for the sake of coming together, I offered it, Schumer said. Despite what some people are saying on TV, and mind you, these folks are not in the room during the discussion, that is exactly what happened. The president picked a number for a wall. I accepted it. The president, over the weekend, took to Twitter, as he does, to suggest that Republicans eliminate the filibuster so that they can pass a long-term budget with 51% of the vote instead of 60% of the vote. That is where we find ourselves today. We have a government that shut down Friday at midnight. Over the weekend, negotiations took place. A group of moderates from both parties in the Senate has been working on a proposal that would keep the government open for three weeks. That is what the Senate is voting on as we are recording. That would have to be passed by the House as well. In connection with that three-week funding effort, Mitch McConnell has promised to start working on immigration legislation, and you predictably have people very skeptical of whether he will do that or not, and even if the Senate passed something, that it would even see the floor for a vote in the House of Representatives. There is a complete absence of trust among members of Congress made worse by all of the language about whether this is a Trump shutdown or a Schumer shutdown over the weekend. First of all, this his decision to tweet that really just what we need is 51 votes infuriates me. This idea of, well, we'll just change the rules, because especially from strict constitutionalists who think our founding fathers were inspired but are more than willing to undo their vision of the Senate. Those senators you disagree with represent Americans. As in theory, so do you. So that infuriates me. I'm not happy with how this has all gone as a Democrat. But believe me when I say that I think the blame lies with the White House. Forget the Durbin-Graham negotiation, which was good, which had compromise, which people were getting, which I'm, I mean, I'm not pleased with some of the stuff we were giving up, but whatever, fine, compromise, let's do this. Forget the fact that he just blew it up, seemingly because Stephen Miller stepped into the room, But then you have Schumer doing the same thing. You are already dragging us to the right on immigration. It infuriates me. I think it is an abdication of our American values. But fine, fine. If more Americans want us to move to the right on immigration and they elected Donald Trump to do that, we live in a democracy and sometimes that sucks, fine. But you're not even happy being drugged to the right. You don't even know where you want to be. And that you make this deal with Chuck Schumer about a stupid wall that everyone hates. You get what you want. And then seconds later, you're gone. And because Stephen Miller or John Kelly or whoever's in charge, because it's not President Trump, Mr. Dealmaker, sitting on the sidelines as this all falls apart because you don't know what you want. The leader of your own party is there in the Senate saying, you don't know what you want. Give me a freaking break. I find this so infuriating. Well, here's where I am. And I'm going to go through my position in a little bit of detail even though we've talked about a lot of these issues before, in case there are people joining us for the first time. So I am conservative in the sense of believing that the federal government should be limited in its powers and each branch should be confined to its constitutional role. And I believe that the creation of DACA via executive order was executive overreach. I 100% agree with what DACA is intended to accomplish. I think it was done the wrong way. 
I also completely have sympathy for why the Obama administration decided to do it that way. But I think it was done poorly. All things can be true. All of those things can be true. All those things are true to me. I think that President Trump's uh, stated reason for eliminating the DACA program is disingenuous. Mm. If it produces the result of codifying DACA, then it will have a happy ending. I think that DACA is a moral and ethical issue and that President Trump should have found a way to honor the commitment the federal government made, even improperly, to DREAMers. Because President Obama's administration said to these people, you are here now. And and that is being taken away. And I think that is wrong. So with all that in mind, I understand why Democrats are forcing this issue in connection with the budget, because all of Congress for decades has proven incapable of meaningful action on immigration. Mm -hmm. I also think keeping the government open for business is very important because there are so many worthy causes that are connected to the government being run. I don't think that the government shutdown should become the vehicle for important policy fights. And so after a lot of consideration, I do not think this is an easy question. After a lot of consideration, I concluded that I would have voted for the short-term resolution to keep the government open and keep working on these issues. Past shutdowns have cost our government tens of million dollars a day. I think it's disrespectful to the ordinary government employees who are doing their very best for our country. I don't want to throw around our military as a way to garner sympathy because I just find that reprehensible. And I appreciated Senator Duckworth's remarks on not being lectured by a president who's never served on what the military needs. So I hate the way the president talks about the military. I do find it disrespectful to the military. If we go a pay period without having paid them on time, I think that that's ridiculous. And we we ought to do better than that. So that's why I would keep the government. I would have voted to keep the government open. I would vote for this resolution today. I think it is unfathomable that this Congress will get its act together to pass something on immigration reform when people like Tom Cotton are trying to build their careers on being anti-immigrant. Yes. And when Stephen Miller's still in the White House, that too, he's got to go. But here's the thing. See, I dislike Stephen Miller with the best of them. But that is one guy who is not elected, who I think could be minimized. What do you do about somebody like Tom Cotton, who seriously, seriously challenges my commitment to our no insults policy? Mm -hmm. I listen to him talk and there is nothing in his words that makes me believe that he thinks America is a nation built on immigration as it is and that immigration is ultimately healthy for our economy. And I've been trying to think about what's a productive way forward, because if I... We're working on immigration policy. I think where I am at this point is I, I would like to sit down with somebody like, not like a Tom Cotton, but somebody with some of those perspectives and say, okay, you think we have too many people coming into the country. I see no validation for that in economic data. But if that's just the sense of the country, and I understand that I don't live here alone and that a whole lot of people in the country believe that we have too many people coming in, fine. I will help you rewrite immigration law to drastically limit the number of people who come into the United States over the next three or four years. And then let's revisit it. I think that would have a very detrimental effect on our economy. But if you want to run that experiment, I will run it with you. However, what I want in exchange is a good 
six-month period where people who are already here have the opportunity to become citizens in this country, where we have an opportunity for anybody who is here illegally, for any reason who has not committed a crime, to become a citizen of the United States. Okay, so let's take care of the people who are here, who know this country, who are our friends and our neighbors, people we've married and had children with. Let's all be here together for the next few years and really limit who comes in during that time period. Can that be our compromise? They are never going to make that compromise because they are terrified of the base. That's just, I mean, to me, that's where we're at. Like, they, there are people, I'm not even sure anymore who's holding the reins. I'm not sure if Tom Cotton and Stephen Miller and Jeff Sessions just are racist, who just believe that this is the downfall of the United States, or if they think that this is the this was Trump's path to success, this is the, the truest, most Breitbart-driven path to electoral success. I don't know what it is. I honestly don't know what's fueling this desire to fundamentally change the way immigration works in this country, do it permanently and not compromise at all. I don't know. I honestly don't know. But I am fearful that they are winning over and over again and that they are changing not only immigration, but the way this country, like I said, like are just very core values. I think it is so disturbing that it's one thing to shut down the government because we're fighting over a really big change to the future of how we seem health care. But now we're shutting down the government over whether children should get insurance or people who were brought here as children. Like, we can't. Oh, sorry. I'm just so I wanna frustrated. I want to ask you, on the policy front, if I proposed that. So if I'm if I'm standing in for Susan Collins. Yeah. If you're and I Collins, propose that to you yeah, let's as do the stand in for Chuck Schumer, you would do that. Yes. I mean, you. I, I hate the idea of restricting immigration dramatically because I do believe that it is critical to our economy. I think it's critical to small business. I will happily accept more migrant workers who come into our country and do work that Americans do not want to do and do it in the name of making a better lives for themselves and their families. To me, justice requires of all of us to love people from other countries and welcome them into our homes. I am pretty dramatically misaligned with the Republican Party on the fundamental philosophy of immigration. And I think it's sad that I am. I think that's the position that Republicans ought to be embracing. However, if we need to have a conversation about too many people coming into the United States from other countries for whatever reason, that is where I would find some space for compromise as long as in exchange we don't like, we just have to stop this nonsense of deporting people Ugh. who have lived here for years and who have put down roots in their communities. People should not be hiding in their homes. You know, people should not be afraid to go to work. What are we even doing as a country? We're living in a bad science fiction novel right now. And I'm just willing to accept that, you know, even a majority, I'm not sure it is, but let's pretend for a minute that a majority of Americans want to move the immigration policy of the United States farther to the right. I don't like it. I don't like it. But this is a democracy and everything that happens is not something I'm going to like that is going to align perfectly with my political views. I am comfortable with that. But they don't want to just move it to the right. I don't know what they want. But whatever people are willing to give, be it a border wall, be it increased border security, be it changing the, the very basis of how people can get into this country, not just the numbers, but literally changing it. It's not good enough for them. Every time he agrees to something, by he, I mean President Trump, they come along behind him and say, nope, not hard-lined enough. And, like, that's not, 
That's not what we do here. What we do is like, we won, so you have to do everything we want. Like, it's just infuriating. I thought Peggy Noonan had a really interesting observation over the weekend about Trump as a deal maker. She said he's a deal maker in the New York real estate scene style of deal making, where it's not really a negotiation. It's, oh, sounds good. We have a plan. Let's finalize it tomorrow. And then tomorrow you say, you know, I was thinking about this and I've got these, these, these and these reasons that that deal wasn't good enough. It's a, it's a shakedown. It's not mm, a deal. It's so a different true. skill set than the skill set needed to facilitate legislative compromise. Yes. So true. Again, I feel like a broken record about him, but it's so transactional. It's so zero sum. For it to be a shakedown, you have to have a goal in mind. And I don't think he does when it comes to immigration. I don't think he knows what he wants. I think he gets in the room and it's, you know, it's not like this hasn't been said a million times about him. It's about the last person who talks to him. And so if that person is Lindsey Graham and Lindsey Graham's like, I feel like his heart's in the right place. But then Stephen Miller comes in the room. I just hope I think Stephen Miller has been able to survive this long because there was always someone in front of him in the line of seniority to take the blame. And I don't think that's going to be true for much longer. He's getting all the press. The spotlight's on him. Trump's not going to like it. I just read they're already trying to look for a new chief of staff. So hopefully maybe we can get rid of some of these hardline people. It's not like Javanka are hardline immigration opponents. So I don't know. I just think it's so frustrating the way this all went down. And I think it is a failure of Mr. Art of the Deal and illustrates, again, the absence of knowledge on how Washington, D.C. works. And I can hear, I hear these voices in my head, the people saying, well, we don't like the way it works and we want to burn it down, blah, 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 blah. But until you have a better idea, until you have a better idea for the way government should run than chaos, I'm not listening anymore. I think that the reason that President Trump always listens to the last person he talked to is because President Trump is more than anything motivated by approval and applause. Mm-hmm. And so he made his positions on the campaign trail what they needed to be to create approval and applause from the people who attended his campaign events. I think the reason getting beyond President Trump and his hangups that probably should be worked out with a trained therapist, <laughs> I think that the reason that immigration policy has been so difficult and the reason that Congress has been failing America on immigration policy for decades is because the position of most Americans on immigration doesn't translate easily to policy. I think most Americans don't want anything illegal to happen. We like we're such a law and order black and white kind of nation that the idea of somebody coming here illegally bothers us enormously. However, most Americans now have exposure to immigrants and mm. like them and care about them and see them as part of the United States, right? And most of us when we're honest see immigration as having brought us to this country. And so Americans as a whole, I think, are neither pro nor anti-immigration. We just want something that works. I think most Americans would not think that our immigration system works very well, yet they still don't like the idea of people not using that system. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a little bit tricky. It's a little bit complicated. And it is made more so when people like Tom Cotton decide to try to push it even more in the black and white arena, which is why I have this tiny grain of optimism coming out of the fact that this weekend, 
a bipartisan group of moderates got together to try to start moving this down the field. Now, I fully understand and appreciate the sentiment that moderation is not always required. The very best thing I think that could happen for our country is to have a governing majority, Mm. a group of both Democrats and Republicans who are willing to actually compromise. There's a place for the far right and the far left, but a group of people who are actually willing to compromise and actually willing to govern, if those people could use this as their first moment to start asserting themselves and then keep doing that, we could get some really good legislation, even with Trump still in the White House. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. 
Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. I still hope that the ultimate result of him being so bad at this job is that Congress will get better at theirs. Yes. I am. I am hopeful. I just worry that there are too many people pulling the levers of Congress that are still so in lockstep with a base that does not reflect the views of the majority of America. And it may take the 2018 elections to sort that out. Mm. I've been watching all of this unfold and thinking a lot about how with children, you think you've got something and then it falls apart because they're in a different stage, right? You get your infant sleeping four, five, six hours a night, and then a different stage hits and they're up all night again. And you Mm. think, how can we be going back to this? And that's how I felt a little bit with Congress. How can we be going back to a shutdown? We know better than this. How can we be going back? But, you know, we're still a relatively young country. (laughs) Maybe this is all just part of our growth. It's a different stage. We have to work through it. Something will be learned from it, hopefully, that helps us in the next run. And if that can happen without too much damage being done in the process, and that's the real concern, right? Too much damage being done to people who believed that they were here in the United States under DACA and be allowed to stay. Too much damage being done by virtue of not funding our government properly. If, if we can minimize all of that damage and actually get to a stable policy for DREAMers uh, that allows them to be here contributing to the country that they love and are part of, then that, that would all be a good thing. I mean, I guess the most important difference for this shutdown in the sort of lifespan of our country is that it's never happened when a party controls all the stinking branches before. And that also might be a good lesson Mm. because you and I talk a lot about how getting everyone in Congress to be of the same party is not a it's not a utopia. There will be conflict and differing positions and there should be there should be conflict and differing positions. There is a way to do that and it'd be healthy. And and this, I think, is highlighting that the more extreme you push in a party, the less healthy that conflict becomes. Yeah, because what I feel like we're headed for, or if we're not already there, is that we've all decided democracy means that for four years you're going to hate everything I do and I'm going to shove it down your throat and tell you that you're a loser and that your values aren't American values and you're the enemy and so I won until I lose and then it's just the opposite. And now we're going to shove it down your throats and you're not going to like it and you're the losers and you're the enemy And it's just going to be this cyclical nastiness as opposed to ruling moderate majority that says neither side is right. Let's find the middle path. I'm just so discouraged. I am. I'm very discouraged. This particularly the conflict among Schumer and McConnell and these people that have been in a body that's sort of built on compromise for decades. It felt nastier. It just felt so intransigent. It just felt like neither side was going to budge. I feel even more discouraged that all we've done is kick the candle February 8th, which is not that far away. It's not. I think it was important to reopen the government. I hope that we don't repeat this on February 8th. 
I think it's possible that we could. I think it is. And that's what's so disturbing. One thing that you can say about both parties right now, both parties are really struggling with leadership. Mm. Who in either party could really get everybody in line at this point? And that's an even worse problem on the Republican side. Yeah. Because Republicans don't have anyone to rally against. Well, they did. That's the reason they were only – honestly, this is what I saw in this. I'm not mad at Schumer. I think he got people in line. I think he – you know, he's a political animal. I think he felt like we – the Democrats were losing the political battle, and he called it. But, you know, a lot of the reporting was, well, the Republicans were doing such a good job of staying on message. Well, surprise, surprise, because they got to be the opposition again for a a few five minutes. They got to blame everything on Democrats. They're seemingly only party strategy. I just feel like immigration is becoming the cheap political trick that abortion was. Ezra Klein, I think this was before the election, made this great point. Mitch McConnell sort of he did the dance, right? He'd go out there. Mitch McConnell, George W. Bush, sort of your traditional party elite, went out there, did the dance, said, oh, yeah, Democrats want to kill babies and Democrats want to flood the country with illegal immigrants and you got to elect us because that's bad, knowing that he didn't really think that, right? He didn't. He knew the truth. He knew he was willing to strike deals. And that's sort of how you got this party base so furious on the right. And you got the Tea Party who said no. And it, it sort of created created the fertile environment for somebody like Donald Trump to be to show up and say, I agree, but I'm not going to lie. I'm really going to blow it up, basically. And I think part of this is what you see is Donald Trump coming to the realization that Mitch McConnell wasn't sort of, he wasn't lying. He was acknowledging the reality of Washington, D.C. And you know, sort of living in these two worlds. And you have somebody who I think, it's not that I think, he had no experience in Washington, D.C. He really had never lived in that world. And so he said everything for applause. It makes everybody, he he plugged in every, you know, it was like hate Washington ad lib. And he plugged in all the, the right verbs and nouns about the swamp. And then he came here and was like, oh, this is going to be tougher than I thought. And he seems to be, and it might not just be him. I think it's also sort of our media environment and social media. You know, it, he's exposing the game. He's exposing what Mitch McConnell and Schumer knew. And you can kind of see it with Schumer and McConnell a lot. Just this like, no, we don't talk about that. No, that's not how we do this. You're exposing this other side that we didn't really ever talk about before. You're kind of letting people see what the real D.C. is about. I don't know. Ultimately, the truth is, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for our democracy. I don't. I don't know if it's better that people not see how the sausage is made because that's just how sausage gets made or if it is a good thing that people are having to look hard, long and hard at the tough choices our legislators have to make and think, would I do it differently? Is there a different way to do it besides... Make sure everyone that's ever elected in Congress agrees 100% with me because that seems like an unrealistic strategy. I guess we'll have to just observe how the next three weeks go because that the answer to that question, whether it's better to have transparency and this mess kind of laid bare for everyone to analyze or to have more of the backroom deals days, I think that depends a lot on the moments in time. Hmm. And you have a nation right now, as much as the leaders in each party don't trust each other, the nation doesn't trust any of them either. You can see that today in the responses to this continuing resolution. 
people are ready to call for the heads of political leaders that a day ago they would have defended to their death, right? Because we've made this battle take on this particular battle about this budget, take on characteristics of lots of different battles that the country is trying to sort out right now. And I think as long as we keep doing that, every fight is going to mean so many things that it's impossible to have a great outcome. And so the transparency of that is pretty painful. Mm -hmm. What I think could be a productive level of pain in connection with that transparency is for our leaders to stop contributing to it. Every person I saw on Sunday shows this weekend, I just wanted to shake. Even the people who were saying things that I agreed with would then work in all of the party's message points about how this is someone else's fault. And the truth is, if you feel so convicted about whichever side of this you were on, then just own it. Yes, we refuse to budge on this because we think it's really important. And if that means you're going to call the shutdown our fault, then you can do that because some things are worth fighting about. And I mean that whether you're spouting the Democratic or the Republican Party line. But the thing is, I don't think anybody feels that convicted about either of those positions because this fight was generated in a lot of ways by different interest groups, you know? And that doesn't make it unimportant. That does, I do let, me, let me just get this out, though. I don't think that makes it unimportant, and I don't think that makes it false, and I don't think anyone's heart is in the wrong place. But if we're going to criticize the way they go about this, we also, we also have to acknowledge our roles mm-hmm. in making these controversies about 15 different things at one time. Yeah, that's true. I was just going to say, I do think there are senators who the dreamer situation is... It's bigger than politics to them. I do believe that. I do. I really do. I do, too. I don't question anybody's sincerity about that. That that does not necessarily follow, though, that tying that to the budget is an issue of moral yeah, certitude. That's true. That's true. You got Saying the issue is important and saying this is the only strategy to make the issue important are not the same thing. And that's what we do over and over again. We tie tactics yep. up with values. So true. That is so true. Well, that's okay. It's everybody. We get three long weeks, I mean, to do this again. I'm sure by then we'll have sorted out our tactics from our values, Beth. Don't worry. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. This is important. Like, this is one of the most important moments in government I think that we've witnessed as far as setting our country's future. I think this is a very important moment in government. If the Republicans change the filibuster rules, that would be enormously significant and consequential. If the DACA Act is not fixed and we suddenly have a situation where the Trump administration aggressively deports dreamers, I think you're going to see a level of civil unrest in this country that is frightening. Mm. I mean, this is, I think, a very important crossroads for us. Now, I've just done what I said we shouldn't do, which is tying a whole bunch of things together at one time. But I think that is where we are. So if they can't get this worked out, it's going to force a whole new set of problems for us to work our way through. I thought we already had a big enough set. We do. And let's hope that the rest of the world maintains some level of stability. I mean, at the same time, you know, we have activity from Turkey and Syria that is hugely consequential. We have the situation with North and South Korea that we just discussed. We still have ongoing investigations about what Russia and China are doing in our country. There's an inbox. And don't forget, Bob Mueller didn't get furloughed. So that continues. We'll leave it there, and next up we're going to talk about what's on our minds outside of politics. 
Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? I am thinking about the difference between books and movies. So I read Our Souls at Night, which is a beautiful novel about some neighbors and it's sort of a love story, and it's really good. I did not love the ending of the novel. Some of it rang untrue. So I didn't really think they were going to change it that dramatically, but I went and watched. I didn't realize until I finished the book. I knew I had read that it was going to be turned into a movie, but I didn't realize it was already out there. So Our Souls at Night has been turned into a Netflix film that's already on Netflix starring Robert Redford and Jane Fonda, killer pairing. And they really changed the ending much to the better. And I've been thinking about the order in which you should read and watch movies. So I had a friend who used to always say, you watch the movie first because then you can enjoy it. Otherwise, you're assessing it in relationship to the movie. And I totally agree with that, even though I haven't been doing it recently. Like, I didn't really watch Big Little Lies because I'd already read the book and I already knew the surprise ending, so I couldn't get into it. And I'm kind of sad about that because I know everybody loved it and it was super good. But at the same time, once I knew this ending, I was definitely not going to go back and read the book. Like, I'm a person very motivated by, like, plot. And so if I know the plot, I'm not going to read the book. I'm stuck. I don't know the best way to do something. And I kind of think, no matter what, the purity of the experience with one or the other is messed with, either whether you read the book or watch the movie. You know what I mean? I do. I think that's a hard question. It is. I'm on the struggle bus. So I'm reading Alias Grace right now, which is one of your favorites. And I guess I'll watch the show, but, like, with Handmaid's Tale, which is one of my favorite favorites, like, I didn't even finish the TV show because I just kind of lost interest. Is that bad? Does that make me a bad person? I think the TV show is a really different experience than the book. I only watched one or two episodes of it, and it just did not... I'm I'm more willing to be transported in the kind of agony-filled way that Margaret Atwood transports you through the lens of a book yeah. than through a television show. That's so true. It's, like, more manageable. It really is. I totally agree with that. And I, I think some of that is just the time commitment. If Handmaid's Tale had been a movie, I think I could do two hours of that. Yeah, but it's But I'm lot. not going to keep coming back to it. Yeah, it is. It's so, so much. But Our Souls at Night, book versus movie, is really tough because I think you get so much more and there's so much more sort of tenderness and beauty in the writing but man i think the movie was, did a much better ending also i love robert redford and jay fonda so i don't know maybe watch both watch read both well since you talked about movies i have been thinking a lot about my two favorite romantic movies that is not a genre that i tend to enjoy but i've been thinking a lot about why it is that my two favorite romantic movies are as good as it gets and something's got to give that's funny. Okay. I have no attraction to Jack Nicholson whatsoever. Yeah, Okay, so th- it made me think, like, why is he the protagonist, kind of? Protagonist-antagonist in both of these movies? I love that scene in Something's Gotta Give where Diane Keaton hands him a pair of scissors and tells him to cut her turtleneck off. I think it's amazing and one of the best scenes ever. And I also just read that he mailed her a check after that movie because he felt she wasn't paid fairly. <gasps> and I thought that was wonderful. That's amazing. Is that not fantastic? Well, okay. So, a couple things here. First of all, on the Jack Nicholson thread, you've watched Terms of Endearment, right? Mm-hmm. That was like peak Jack Nicholson to me. I think he's so good in that movie. With regards to Something's Gotta Give, that is an important separate genre, which is Nancy Myers films, all of which I just want to live in. I just want to live in the homes, and I want to wear so the clothes. Beautiful. They're so beautiful. I love them. Everything's so fresh and clean, oh. and it's... 
Yeah. There's a lot it of does feel good. There's a lot of grayish, but I'm here for it and I love it. I think both of those movies he he does this really cool thing, I think, in both those movies, in which he is both traditionally masculine, but also vulnerable and open. Maybe that's what it is. I think he kind of walks that line really well in both of those movies. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I think that's because neither of them are traditional love stories. Right. They're really about people who have learned a lot and have gotten a lot of things wrong along the way and have been on these paths of like self-discovery, figuring out what romance means for them and like what percentage of their lives it's going to account for. And whether it can still be meaningful. I don't know. I think there are a lot of... They they ask more questions than they answer. And I like that about both of them. I need to watch Something's Gotta Give again. I think I've only seen it once. I've seen it as good as it gets several times because I really love that movie. And I have still really want one of those little dogs. I think it's so cute. The soundtracks for both are really great, too. That would be a fun... That needs to be a nuanced life. We need to do an episode on, like, your favorite romantic comedies and what those say about you. Because we actually were busting hard on romantic comedies on tomorrow's episode of The Nuanced Life because we think they set unrealistic expectations in life, love, and sex. But they're still really fun to talk about. But these two movies really don't do that, right? I mean, these two movies are really about older people who've been through all of that nonsense. And are kind of rethinking what all of this means. And that's definitely what Our Souls at Night is about as well. And in a much less funny way. It's not a funny movie. But very sweet. And they're both really great in it. Also, I love Robert Redford so much. See, Robert Redford, I do think, is attractive. Jack Nicholson, not at all. I mean, but thank you, Jack Nicholson, for sending money to Diane Keaton. Yeah, she deserved it. That's amazing. Well, thank you for joining us for a rather intense episode of pantsu politics especially since the news was flowing about the shutdown as we were recording so thanks for sticking with us through that and until friday when we will release a shorter episode covering the latest news and listener feedback keep it nuanced y'all thank you so much to our executive producers nicholas chad tracy leslie sabrina and george you can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Pantsuit Politics theme music.